0: You know, we stand for the reading of scripture, and I know you think, well, it's, it's church, so up, down, up, down, up, down, but I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to read our scripture today, uh, together today, and uh, most weeks, I, uh, I say why we stand, and it's because we believe that intelligent people can take the Bible seriously, interpret it in its historical context. We believe the Bible is life-giving. It can be a guide for our lives. That doesn't, need... you don't have, I have questions What if I stand here? Is that better? Hmm. We'll see if that keeps happening. But it doesn't mean that you don't have questions about what's happening when we read a passage. We say this is a place where you can express your faith and your doubts. But at the same time, we believe that intelligent people can take the Bible seriously. And so let's read this scripture together. Uh, From Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 33 and then 38 and 39. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, the man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived among the tombs, in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirits to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained, hand and foot, and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission when the demons came out of the man, they, were, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. In the second scripture from Luke 13:10 through 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. A woman was a sign of, it was a term of respect, actually, in, in the time of Jesus. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's word. You may be seated.
1: of street knowledge.
0: The series is almost over. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to miss playing NWA in church. I, that's been a lot of fun for me. And this, is, uh, this is our series straight out of Nazareth for the grammar police among us, straight out of Nazareth. Works too. That's fine. But this is our series on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're studying uh, this Gospel where Jesus is in his hometown in Luke chapter 4 a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he opens a scroll to uh, the prophet Isaiah, and he reads from chapter 61 of the prophet Isaiah, and that's what he reads, what you, said, what you uh, wrote on the, read on the screen, that he come to uh, preach good news to the poor, and recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom from the prisoners. And Jesus announced his mission, and in Luke, specifically, Luke focuses on how Jesus brings good news to people who feel marginalized people who are on the outskirts of society, people who felt invisible often in their culture, people who felt like nobodies. And so when we read the Gospel of Luke, um, we, we realize that we may feel that way, that we can sometimes identify with some of these people who feel like outsiders, who are, who are uh, viewed as invisible or nobodies in certain ways. You can be a somebody in, in some ways, but feel like a nobody in other ways. And so we're discovering how God wants to speak to us through the Gospel of Luke as well. And today we're talking about good news for the spiritually traumatized. And when I, when I thought about that title, I thought, you know, um, some people, um, as we're going to see, have experienced spiritual trauma, what could be actually be called trauma, and perhaps even diagnosable. Most of us would probably not say that. Most of us, would, if we've had, if we've had difficult experiences in church, some of us haven't, Frankly, we've had a good experience in church. Now, if that's you, consider yourself blessed because many of us have had painful experiences in church. But we may not call it you know, trauma. We may not. I think, I think I'm, I'm conducting a science experiment right now. And if I put my toe right there, the mic cuts out. That's my hypothesis at this point. So I'm going to try not to do that. I'm going to scoot back a little bit. And, and so if you might not call it trauma, but you might say it was a painful experience, that you had in church, or a hurtful one, or maybe a disappointing experience. You connected in, in a church family, and, and everything was roses, and there was a honeymoon period, and then some, you know, some time went by, and then something happened, and you discovered that churches, like everywhere else in this world, are full of people. It's not just when I put my toe there, apparently, so we'll just keep moving around, and we'll see how it goes. Churches are full of people full of humans with all of our imperfections and flaws and some, some people who have big problems and they, they act out and they, they hurt other people uh, because of those problems. And, and so we're, I promised last week I wasn't going to get graphic and tell a bunch of stories about horrible, traumatic, painful church experiences because for some of you, that would bring back memories that it's just, it's just a little much. And so I'm going to stick to that promise today. We can, we can kind of speak in generalities about that. And so you may not call it trauma, but I want to ask you, what has been a painful experience for you in church? What has been the most painful for you? What, what is that thing that was hurtful? Or maybe it's not just church, maybe it's with your family. Maybe it was being raised in a, in a religious atmosphere and, and, and things that happened. Then what, what does that look like for you? Regardless of what word you would use, a friend of mine a few years ago wrote a book Her name is uh, Teresa Pascal. She wrote a book called Sacred Wounds, A Path to Healing from Spiritual Trauma. She's a graduate of NYU, and she worked as a trauma counselor for years and primarily counseling veterans who were struggling with PTSD. And she realized through a turn of events that it's not just veterans. There are other people too, of course, who have have, uh, experienced trauma in their lives. And she realized that that also includes religious trauma, she talked to people who had been abused by religious authority figures. And of course, we've heard about the, the unbelievable cases and the number of cases of people being molested by a religious authority figure. That's trauma. Or people who have been raised in an atmosphere where it was controlling and manipulative and almost cult-like. And they've had a long road to journey out of that environment. That's trauma. Trauma. Or people who, you know, they were a part of a church family and they loved it and they encountered this pastor that they thought was amazing. And it turns out that that pastor was a narcissist who hurt other people and lied and, and used people. And she, she started counseling people who have experienced that kind of pain in church. And her, her book, Sacred Wounds, A Path to Healing from Spiritual Trauma, was all about uh, her experience. Now, uh, in our highly politically divided culture... The words trauma or the word triggered has become a, political, a politically loaded word, hasn't it? And so if you make the mistake of reading comments on Facebook, anybody ever make that mistake? And you, 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 you read down through and somebody shares a story and or you know, their opinion and somebody else will say something and, oh, I'm sorry I triggered you. you know, I'm sorry I traumatized you with my comment. Those words have become politically loaded now, but they're realities for people. Uh, I... I believe spiritual trauma is a real thing. I believe that people can be triggered. And that's why I said I'm not going to tell a bunch of graphic stories, but we're going to stick to some questions today. And this is going to be my sermon, these three questions. And so uh, as we go through the sermon, I, I invite you to think about your answers to these questions. What has been your most painful experience of church and religion? How has that affected your spiritual life? And then the third question how is your healing process going? What's been your most painful experience? How's that affected your spiritual life? And how is your healing process going? We're not going to spend much time on number one because I'm guessing you can answer the question pretty quickly. You don't need you don't need much of my help to do that, and and you have those memories, and um, it's easy for you to to think about what happened to you. Memories can be uh, very powerful, can't they? They can you know we can we can walk into a space or know that we're walking into a church and the memories of some kind of pain from, from church can even make it difficult to walk in. Memories can affect uh, us that powerfully and the, the effect can be instant. It can hit us without us realizing it. We're, we're not expecting it and all of a sudden, like a ton of bricks, some memory comes back and we're flooded with emotion about something that happened. It can happen in funny ways too. A friend of ours uh, gave Hannah and I a gift card to Chili's and and so last week we went to Chili's and took our boys, and uh, you know, we're eating the appetizer, that, that incredibly addictive salsa. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, anybody want to say amen about Chili's salsa, brothers and sisters? And so we're dipping our chips into the salsa and the guac, and, and somebody working at Chili's that night you know, had a thing for the 80s. So they, they were play, all the music was like an 80s playlist. And so we heard, I think, some Hall & Oates, maybe, um, some Tears for Fears. And, and as we're eating the appetizer you know i 'm I'm putting chip to salsa, and I hear in the background who I think is Michael mcdonald and Michael McDonald is one of those eighties artists where you still hear him, but not quite as much as some other artists that you hear all the time when, when everybody 's you know playing a, playing an eighties playlist and so I hear Michael Mcdonald and with my with my chip in the salsa, I have this mental image of probably circa 1985, driving in my parents' car in Marion, Ohio, where I grew up, going to the Southland Mall. Back when going to the mall was like a cool thing. Like that was the place to go. And that was it. Just this little memory of being a kid and being, and being in my parents' car. And, and there's no dramatic story there. Nothing else. There's no punchline. Like I said, and then I found $5. But like nothing happened, actually. It was just a memory of me, riding in my parents' car sometime in the 80s. And I'm like, I don't know if I heard that song, and that's actually a memory or if it's just an association. But there was a song on in the background, with over, you know, over the noise of a restaurant, and all of a sudden, instantly, I was, I was transported. Just for a second, I had this memory of this other time and this other place. Smell is one of the greatest activators of memories, isn't it? Has that happened to you, where you smell something? All of a sudden, it just, it just takes you back to some memory. I rode my motorcycle this week somewhere. I can't remember where I was going. I had my helmet on. I was on Gilbert Road at a stoplight. I remember that. And I flipped up my visor, and in the lane next to me was a guy you know, riding in his car, and he had his driver's side window down. So I'm on a bike in the middle of the lane. This guy's in this lane over here. We're at least six, seven feet away from each other, and I can totally smell the guy's cologne from six or seven feet away. Some people just need to learn the, the value of subtlety. Are you with me when it comes to cologne? And, and so the breeze was just blowing the right way and, and I got I got a whiff of this guy's cologne. And, uh, you know, that smell, you know, when you sm- smell something, it just takes you back. I can remember, you know, people that I've known who, who wore that cologne and, and, and I'm, I'm thinking, uh, you know, what are this guy's dates like? When he goes out with his significant other to dinner And he's like, "How's the chicken, honey?" And she's like, "I couldn't tell you. All I taste is Jacquard Noir. It doesn't matter—chicken, beef, egg, parm. I mean, eggplant. Whatever it is, I've tasted cologne for ten years." Right? This guy just—how many memories has he triggered with his with his favorite cologne? But we sounds smells can bring back memories. We've all had the experience when you lose somebody and you're grieving and maybe it's been a while and you 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 know the grief is subsiding to some extent but then all of a sudden you see that thing or you hear that song or you that smell or and then all of a sudden that grief just comes rushing back like a ton of bricks doesn't it we all know what that's like when you it's it's being triggered when all of a sudden this memory comes back and that can help that can happen to us when we think about painful experiences in church or even when we're not trying to think about it. For some folks, hearing the word church can trigger painful memories. I've had two people in the past few weeks tell me they're glad we don't meet in the church building. They said, it's hard for me to go into a church building. It's kind of, it's kind of cool that you're in school. I'm like, all right, well, at least you think so. You know, but it's true for them. Uh, a member of our congregation named Janet uh, shared this story last week with me. She's a math education researcher. So she researches, she researches how people learn math. How's that for a career? It's an, it's an interesting career. And she told me this story. And I asked her if she would kind of type it out and send it to me. What happened? She, she was um, with a student, like tutoring in math or something like that. And the student saw a symbol, like some kind of math symbol. And it, it took him back to feeling like a failure in math. And she said from that point on, it was really hard for him to, like, to engage to believe that he could really succeed in math, she said, I was recently conducting a clinical interview, that's what it was with the student, when things went off track. While working with the student, I used a symbol that he was not accustomed to seeing in the context we were discussing. He did, however, remember the symbol from a different topic in mathematics, a topic which with, with which he had struggled. As a result, he could not process through the interview as planned. The symbol I used and his negative associations, associations with it put up a roadblock to further discussion. Uh, he was unable to make decisions about the topic we were discussing, and he kept referencing the challenging topic from the past. And so she's documenting this as a part of her job, and, and she's working on an article about how even math symbols can trigger children or, or students feeling like a failure in math. And if you teach math, how you can overcome that with the students. So we can easily remember, for most of us, what has been the most painful experience of church and religion. And so the second question: How is that painful experience? Affected your spiritual life. I want to ask you that. How is that painful experience? If you just kind of think back. This happened to me and, and since then, here are the feelings, the thoughts that I've had connected to that. To that painful experience. How has that affected your spiritual life? Do you feel distant from God? Do you wonder where was God? Is it something that deeply bothers you? Is it something, it was, it was to the extent that it deeply still troubles you. Is it something that you feel like you carry with you? You try to like, shake it off, and it just, you know, it, it just won't go away. You know, what, how has that affected your spiritual life? For some of us, we know. We know how it's affected us. And, and for some of us, coming back here is actually a step in healing because it's, it's a step towards you know, re-engaging. When maybe we've been out for a while. Some of us may not know. We may, we may not be totally aware of how that painful experience has affected our spiritual life. Lives. There was a man in Luke 4 that we read about who was profoundly affected by spiritual trauma. And, and there's more to it than, than what's on the surface of the story. We're going to see that in a moment. And I just want to be clear what I'm not saying is that people who feel spirit, spiritual trauma are possessed by the devil. That's not, that's not the point of the sermon today. You're, we're going to see in a, in a moment that there's much more happening here in this man's life that Jesus was addressing. But this man was traumatized, and that trauma that he had experienced made it impossible for him to continue to go on with his daily life the way that he had. It wasn't just his spiritual life. Maybe for you, it has made going on with your spiritual life impossible the way that it was before, but for him, this, was, this affected his entire life. And Jesus lived and traveled mostly around the north and west sides of the Sea of, Gal- of, sea of Galilee because those were the Jewish areas, and Jesus was a Jew. And he ministered primarily to Jewish people while he walked the earth. And on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the east side, was an area called the Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities. And the people who inhabited the Decapolis were Hellenized people. They are people who were of Greek culture. They were Gentiles, non-Jews. And Jews didn't really go over to the east side of the lake because they considered it a place that was unclean and that they could come into contact with all kinds of things that would not help them. And their their spiritual life of being an observant Jew. You can see the Decapolis. So the Sea of Galilee is that body of water up north. And then you see 10 cities over here on the east. That that river in the middle is the Jordan River, and it flows down to the Dead Sea. And this is, of course, what is now Israel. Galilee is the region to the north. Judea, the region to the south where Jerusalem is. And this area over here to the right of the Jordan River is the Decapolis. And Luke tells us, And there's a similar story in Mark and Matthew as well, that Jesus and his disciples sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee from, for us, what is the left side over to the right side, the east side. A place where they didn't normally go. But Jesus wanted to sail to the other side of the lake because he had something he wanted to do there. And so this is a place that is viewed as a place of spiritual darkness, the Decapolis. It's a place that's kind of Kind of scary. It's a place that would cause um, great challenge to an observant Jew's spiritual life. Painful in a sense. But it's a place they didn't want to go. They just didn't go there. But Jesus, for some reason, goes there. There's this mysterious, scary place, dark place. And Jesus goes there. He goes there. He's not afraid to. And so they sail on the other side of the lake, and then Luke tells us that they, when they step off the boat, they encounter this man. And he, he's a man who's obviously tormented, and he lives among the tombs. T- tombs, cemeteries, were places of uncleanness to a Jew as well. So the, the conflict is deepening. As they get off the boat, now they're in a place that is full of uncleanness. And now they meet a man who's possessed by the devil in, 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 the, in the view of the ancient world. And so this is just getting worse and worse and worse. And yet Jesus still moves toward this man. Now, when there are are people who read this story in in the 21st century in a post-enlightenment world, post-scientific revolution world, and we have questions about demon possession and the devil and impure spirits and and this woman who was crippled in Luke 13. It says Satan had, had made her crippled that somehow a spirit had made her crippled. Now, of course, in our world, we might have a different view of that. Maybe you, maybe you, maybe that's what's going on with the microphone. Uh, Who knows? Maybe we should start Ace Ventura. I have exercised the demons. Maybe we should try that with the mic. But maybe you have, you know, a view that fits with Luke. Maybe these kinds of stories are very difficult for you. If you see a man who's homeless and disheveled and he cries out in pain and, and Mark tells us he cuts himself, in today's vernacular, what might we say about him? That he struggles, maybe mental illness. Correct. Or the woman who was crippled. Maybe there's something else. But in the ancient world, this is what was, was going on. And Luke demonstrates that Jesus has power over the spiritual world. Jesus asked the demons their name. And in the ancient world, if you're performing an exorcism, knowing the name of that entity gave you power over that entity. It was just a belief that they had. And so Jesus asks this evil spirit, this demon, its name. And what is the answer? And Mark Mark gives us the more chilling version, actually, in Mark's telling of this story. It says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Isn't that a chilling answer? Wow. My name is Legion. Now, again, when we read the scripture, we're stepping back into another time, into another place. And when you hear the name legion in the New Testament, what does legion normally refer to in this time of the Roman Empire? Does anybody know? Roman, excellent, Roman troops, Roman soldiers. A legion was five to 6,000 Roman soldiers. It's a legion. And this area was occupied by the Romans. This, they had been uh, subsumed by the Roman Empire. And they were subservient to the Roman Empire. They occupied uh, this land... Uh, decades before Jesus was born. And so when you hear the name Legion, immediately, in, in, this, uh, in this culture, when these people are hearing Luke for the first time, immediately their their minds go to, a, to five or 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us where this story took place. We read it was in the, the region of the Gerasenes, which is in Gerasa, the lower right-hand city. You see Gerasa there in the middle of the screen. Matthew says it was in Gadara, which is closer to the Sea of Galilee. And then Luke probably gets it from Mark. Mark says Gerasa as well. There's another city called the the, uh, Gergasa. And some manuscripts of Matthew say that word, Gergasa, instead of Gadara. And so... As we look at these cities, the, the, the story goes that when Jesus stepped off the boat, he encounters this man, and he, the demons go into the pigs, and they run downhill into the Sea of Galilee. Look where Gerasa is, to the Sea of Galilee. If Gerasa, by the way, obviously we don't know the scale of the map, but Gerasa is about 41 miles from the Sea of Galilee. So if the story took place in Gerasa, that means Jesus lets the demons go into the pigs, and they run into the water and drown. And the pigs ran a marathon and a half before they drowned in the Sea of Galilee, if, if, it's, if it's truly in Gerasa. Gadara, Matthew probably knows the geography of this area a little better. And when he reads that in Mark, which is our thought, that perhaps Mark came first around 66, 67 AD, Matthew sees, ah, oh, probably not Gerasa. It's probably Gadara. It's closer to the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, if you say the region of the Gadarenes, the region of Gadara, well, then that can put you pretty close to the water. So the geography here, for those who, you know, maybe this isn't an issue for some of you, but for those who really pay attention to the Bible, they would say, oh, well, there's a contradiction. We can't take the Bible seriously because of that. Here's what we know about that area. And perhaps Mark and Luke had it a little bit off. You know, you could say the region of Gerasa, like they did, and you could get a little closer. Perhaps they were a little bit off. Matthew knew the area a little bit better, but here's what we know. In 67 to 68 AD, right around the time that the Gospel of Mark was written, and Matthew and Luke maybe five, ten years later, we're not sure, but that's what Bible scholars tend to think. 67 to 68 AD, there had been uprisings in this area where the people were getting tired of living under Roman occupation. And the Roman general Vespasian, who later became the emperor, was dispatched to Galilee in 67, 68 AD, and Vespasian conquered, and maybe is not the right word, he crushed Galilee. Uh, historians tell us, the historian Josephus tells us that Gerasa was attacked. We don't know if it was that Gerasa or not, there's some discussion about that, but he tells us that Gerasa was attacked and about a thousand people were killed. And people were taken off into slavery. The women and children were taken off as slaves. And they burned the entire village to the ground. But before they did that, Vespasian, the first city he took, was Gadara. And uh, the Jewish encyclopedia of 1906 tells us that when Vespasian went into Gadara, they killed every inhabitant. They just killed everybody. We're tired of you people being difficult to rule It was the domination empire. We're tired of the uprisings. And they went in and they just killed everybody. And then all of the surrounding villages were burned to the ground. In other cities, they took slaves like in in Gerasa, but in Gadara, they just killed everybody. And they burned it all to the ground. So right around the time that Mark was written, and just a little bit before Luke and Matthew some horrible, brutal, traumatic event took place in the Decapolis. And the people who lived here uh, experienced horrors that are difficult for many of us to imagine. People doing things to them that they didn't want them to do. People taking things from them, attacking them, showing them no mercy, treating them like they were not even human. That's what these people in the Decapolis experienced right before the Gospels were written. So when Luke says, my name is Legion, it's a clue that something more is going on than one man who's tormented. And then there are other words in the passage that make it extremely clear, as if that wasn't enough of a clue. When Jesus casts the demons out, Luke uses a military term that he dismisses them like dismissing troops, like a commanding officer would dismiss troops. So there's this legion in the man, and then Jesus dismisses them. And then this, this group of pigs, this herd of pigs that is in the story, obviously not an animal rights story here, but this, there's this herd of pigs. And the, the word Luke uses for the herd of pigs could also be translated as a band of pigs. A band was um, a group of Roman soldiers who were new recruits. It's a band of soldiers, new recruits. So Jesus encounters legion, and he dismisses the legion into a band of pigs. And then when the pigs rush down into the water, another word, there's a Greek word that's used that could also be translated as marched. So Jesus encounters legion, five or 6,000 Roman soldiers, and dismisses them into a band, a military term of pigs, and then marches them, down into the Sea of Galilee? Do you remember a story from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where an army follows uh, a group of people and they're drowned in the Red Sea? Do you remember when, when Pharaoh's army chases the Israelites led by Moses out of, the, out of Egypt and Pharaoh's army is drowned? And so for Luke, this is about more than this traumatized man. This man certainly was traumatized. But this is a story of a people. This man is a symbol of, a, of, a, of an entire people who were traumatized by people who took things from them and and hurt them, murdered them, and violated them. And clearly what Luke is saying here is Jesus went there. To people who were this traumatized, people who had been uh, crushed, their spirits had been crushed to this extent, Jesus went there. And he offered healing to them. This is a place many people wouldn't go. And in this story where you know, Jesus encounters this man, it becomes about something much bigger that gives hope to these people after they've had experienced this trauma. Jesus went there to liberate them, to heal them, to restore them, to set them free from the awful thing that had happened to them. And he, this man's among the tombs. Of course, there's, there's feelings of grief and symbols of grief about what they, these people were experiencing. And Luke says no Jesus wants to heal. Wants to restore. Wants to set people free. The healing of the crippled woman same thing. Jesus heals her on the Sabbath. And and some very religious people see that and they say you can work on 6 days. Healing's considered work. So wh- why don't you just follow the religious laws and not heal on the Sabbath? This poor woman you know who, who has experienced this healing in her life is now called out by religious people. Maybe you've been disappointed by religious people like that before. What does Jesus do? He defends her dignity. This woman's a daughter of Abraham. We, in our vernacular, we say she's a child of God, somebody who's important and, and worthy of dignity. And it's, it's only fitting that she be healed on the Sabbath. So, so Jesus sets this man free by his healing to him. But then for this, for this woman, he defends her and her dignity. And I wonder if you think about the painful experience that you've, experienced, that you've had in church in your religious life and how that's affected your spiritual life. And then you read stories like this where Jesus is a healer. Jesus goes there. He goes out of his way to provide healing. He defends this poor woman who's attacked by religious people who are more concerned about their religious rules than they are her, her personhood and her dignity. He defends her. I wonder how that affects, how does that speak to your spiritual life and, and the way that uh, this has affected her and this man? Which brings me to the third question. How is your healing process going? How is your healing process coming along from this painful experience? The Roman legions tormented this area. Uh, the religious people you know, dismissed this woman because she was healed on, on the wrong day in their minds. But that's not the end of the story. We, we, if we stop there, then we would, be, we would be tempted to be cynical and to give up and, and just, to, just to, to be outraged and, 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 and lashing out at, at the people who had hurt us and lashing out at what we, what we see in the world and just kind of stuck there. But that's not where the stories end. The man goes back home restored and the woman goes back home healed. And Jesus defends her. They're reminders to us that if we don't heal, if we don't heal, if we get stuck just looking at the bad thing that happened and we don't heal, we can also hurt others in the same way that we were hurt. If we we don't focus on the end of the story and somehow journey towards the end of the story, the healing, the restoring part of the story, we can get stuck in a place where we're hurt, but then we also hurt other people the same way we were hurt. We all know how this works. It's often said that people who are abused can easily become abusers. That's not always true, of course. Or there's the, the trite cliche, but it's, it tends to be true that hurt people hurt people. And, and we, we just know that's true in life. If we, if we draw in and withdraw and become defensive and we become bitter and let anger take over and, and cynicism and a dark view of the world, then we can become the kind of people who hurt other people without even knowing it, without trying to. But we can hurt them in the same way. My, my friend Rabbi Shmuley Yanklewitz posted a quote on Instagram yesterday from another rabbi, and I have it here for you. It says, if, if you see what needs to be repaired and how to repair it, then you have found a piece of the world that God has left you to complete. But if you only see what is wrong and what is ugly in the world, then it is you yourself that needs repair. Sometimes it's tempting for us to get trapped in cynicism and, and only focus on the darkness, on the hurt. But cynicism is not really the answer. It's not wisdom. It's not healing. It, it's, it's, it's a place where it's, we're stuck. I remember Stephen Colbert saying, some people mistake cynicism for wisdom and thinking that they have life all figured out now because they're cynical. And, he's, and Colbert was like, no, cynicism is actually the opposite of wisdom. Cynicism is closed. It's no, I've experienced this pain and I've got it all figured out now and I know the way things work and I just kind of, I'm dismissive to anything new. He said, Wisdom is the opposite of that. Wisdom is openness. That yes, this, this terrible thing happened to me, but I'm also open to healing. I'm open to seeing things in a new way. I'm open to insights in my life. And healing requires being able to see things in a new way. When Janet shared about the math student who got stuck feeling like he couldn't succeed at math, um, she uh, found some, uh, some research that uh, she's going to incorporate in her article about how to help students pass that. And the research by Joe Bowler at Stanford University says this. It's not on the screen. I'll just read the quote for you. We all know that math trauma exists and is debilitating for people. It would be hard to overstate the number of people who walk on our planet who have not been harmed by bad math teaching. Don't you love the passion here for math teaching in this, in this passage? But the negative ideals, ideas that prevail about math do not come only from harmful teaching practices. They come from one idea which is very strong, permeates many societies, and is at the root of math failure and underachievement, that only some people can be good at math. Do you believe that? There's These math researchers looking into this, there's this belief that only some people can be good at math. That single belief that math is a gift that some people have and others don't is responsible for much of the widespread math failure in the world. I love the passion of these people. And then Janet wrote, they call it a fixed mindset, this this fixed mindset that no only some people are good at math. And then Janet wrote, a fixed mindset is one that is either in or out and results in all kinds of negative consequences in mathematics learning, and I suspect the same is true of religion. Fear, shame, and trauma can be alleviated if we shift away from the belief that we can be outside of God's love. And so being healed probably requires seeing some things in a new way. Resisting cynicism and embracing wisdom, as Colbert said, and be open to seeing things in a new way, things like church, things like the Bible, um, when we're hurt by religious authority figures, it's easy. Our brains, our brains tell us to do this, to generalize and avoid anything that looks like that in the future. Like when you put your hand on a stove burner, you, just, you don't feel like cooking after that. Just stay away from the stove. And there are people who have been horribly abused by religious figures mistreated by narcissistic pastors, and it's very, very easy to somehow say, God failed me, or the church failed me, when in reality, and this may be very difficult for some of us, we're we're, we're going from the particular to the general, and that's a mistake that is even behind racism. Racism. You see this in somebody, well, all of these people are like this. Well, no, that's not true. That's a hasty generalization. But our brains make it so easy for us to do that because we want to avoid that pain in the future. And so the truth is, it's impossible. And of course, I'm a pastor and you would expect me to say this. But I just think this is true. It's possible for people to be hurt by the church. The truth is, it wasn't church that hurt you. It was a messed up human being, or maybe a few of them, or maybe a system that had been created by those people, a system of cover-ups and sweeping things under the rug, a system of giving too much credit to narcissistic pastors instead of looking into their behavior. That's true, but it wasn't the church. And what I hope we can see in this passage is that it wasn't Jesus. And once again, this is tough. I understand the, the depth of pain, I, and I could believe me, I could tell you some stories about, about pain in church and disappointment and manipulation and control and what really is abusive behavior. I've experienced those things more than once, and sometimes I'm surprised that I'm still in the game, just to be honest with you, and I know for some of you, that's tough too, but what's been the key for me is to realize, it, no, this is who hurt me. That person's name or that system, yes, but, you know, people, people are people. It wasn't, it wasn't the church. It wasn't God. It wasn't Jesus who hurt me. There's a difference between abusive, manipulative, you know, manipulative religious leaders and Jesus. Clearly, we can see that in a passage like this. Jesus calls out The people who are doing the manipulating, the abusing, the traumatizing. Jesus calls them out. He heals. He defends the the person who's the victim of that. Jesus, and I'm just speaking for myself, Jesus is not responsible for the bad experiences I had in church. And when I'm able to see that in a new way, well, now there's a whole new world open to me, a world of healing, a world of giving it another go, a world of starting a church again that can do something better that can hopefully be a part of the solution instead of the problem. We're going to have a membership class here in a few minutes and talk about those kinds of things. But what I'm able to see in a new way now, healing is available to me. A couple of stories I want to close with. I was in downtown Phoenix last weekend. And uh, um, parked on Adams Street. And I walked past this deli in, in downtown Phoenix on Adams Street. And there was a man who was most likely homeless, laying on the bench, disheveled. You know, and, and uh, as, I, as I walked down the sidewalk, I saw who may have been the deli owner or an employee of the deli walk out, and he, he handed this guy on the bench a bottle of water. And then the, the deli owner or employee, he walked back into the deli. A couple seconds later, I'm just walking down the sidewalk, and he comes out with a sandwich, and he handed it to the guy. I didn't see any money exchanged. And I thought, you know, in that second, you see little things like that, right? And, and it was just a reminder, oh, there is goodness in this world. There are good people in this world who care, and that's, that's not gonna get reported on the news, is it? You know, and all the news in our world, but stuff like that happens on a daily basis. It's not just that, that deli in downtown Phoenix. There are people who do good things all the time, and that's a part of reality as well, It it's just good for me to see. And then another example, it was on, it was on the news um, recently, um, and we have, we have to acknowledge over the past few years, uh, we have made steps in the right direction in our culture in realizing injustice and abuse where it happens. That's what the Me Too movement is about. Uh, and there, there are several movements like that, uh, looking for areas of injustice and calling them out. One of them is, is in cases of, of police, uh, excessive force. And of course, Phoenix was in the news for that recently, um. But then something else happened in Chandler. is the Chandler police, actually. Uh, and this happened in March, but it just came out. They just released a video here a couple of weeks ago, and it was on the news. And I just think it's good for us to see things like this. It's good to see both. It's good to see examples of, of abuses that take place, because then we can work for justice and righteousness. Are you with me on that? And at the same time, it's good for us to see great examples of, of good cops and good leaders and good pastors and, and good churches and because they help us to see things rightly as they really are. It's not all bad. And we don't have to just get stuck in cynicism, but we can see something that is better than that. and So this is just a quick clip from, I think, Channel 12 about something this Chandler cop did back in March, and they just released a video. I want to invite you to check it out as we close.
1: Now to our big story tonight at 4.30, a Valley police officer jumps into action to save a man's life. With his body camera rolling, a Chandler police officer negotiates with the man standing inches from the ledge above the freeway. Team 12's Rachel Cole joins us now with the story and why so many are praising the officer's actions. Rachel. Yeah, that's right, Caribbean Tram. The officer's name is Officer Aaron Little. And while the incident itself happened back in March, it was the recent release of that raw body cam footage that has everyone talking. Take a look.
0: Please climb up over that fence, buddy. Please, it's just me and you, man, that's it.
1: The video is hard to watch. Caught on camera, a simple offer from a Chandler police officer that saved the life of a 26-year-old man in distress.
0: Hey, buddy, don't go any lower. Please don't go any lower. Come back up here, man. Don't you want that hug? Then come up here. I will
1: give you that hug, man. I will give it to you. Tense moments as the man lowers himself down the protective railing of a pedestrian bridge over the Loop 101. I'm not lying, man. I will give you that hug. And finally... You're good. You're good. Keep
0: coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. Nice and slow. Nice and slow. Go
1: ahead.
0: give me that hug. I'm not yeah. gonna do anything to you. Just do grab my gun, all right? <laughs> you all right, You yeah.
1: Can actually hear that guy crying in there. Officer Little has declined to interview, but his squad says his level of compassion is one that can be found throughout the Chandler Police Department. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, there is help available 24/7 through the National Suicide Prevention Line. That number is 1-800-273-8255. Girls. All right, Rachel, thank you so much.
0: That's how it's done right there, isn't it? Isn't it phenomenal. Isn't it good to see? And and you know, maybe it's good cops like that, excellent cops like that, or a counselor or trusted friends, or new church family members are the kind of people that can, can be healers in your life and help you process through trauma and grief and difficulty and pain. Jesus is a healer. And regardless of your level of questions or your skepticism, one of the things we want to get across here at the well is that we, we look at Scripture, rightly interpreted in the light of its historical context, the picture of Jesus that we see, the picture of God that we see, is much different than what you may have received in the past. And maybe it was people who were dealing with their own problems, and, they, and, and hurt people hurt people, right? And they were hurt, and they never really healed, and they just kind of pushed that onto you. And that somehow that got conflated with who God is, who Jesus is, the church. I want to invite you to see in new ways. And the, the truth is, I'm preaching to the choir, because that's why you're here. Many of you, that's your journey. And so as we go forward as the well, you know, we, want to, we want to hold out that same kind of hope and healing. In a way, take the place of that officer in people's lives. As a church, we can, we can do what he did. See, I'll give you that hug. I'll give you that welcome. I'll, I'll invite you in. I love how he said, just don't go for my gun. He's like, I'll give you the hug, just don't go for my gun. And we can, we can be that. We can be that kind of healing presence in people's lives. I want to invite you to bow with me. We're going to close in prayer. The band's going to come up. We'll sing one more song, and then we'll have our membership class for anybody interested in, in being a part of it. God, we're, we're struck by the world we live in and the amount of, of pain in it and how you know this poor guy hanging off the, the bridge over the 101 was ready to end it all because he believed that that was the only response that was available to him from whatever trauma he had experienced in life and perhaps dealing with depression and and struggling with that and and look at this cop enabling this guy to see in a new way I'll give you that hug God we open ourselves to seeing in new ways we don't want to perpetuate hurt we don't want to be to be stuck where we uh experience pain and disappointment and get stuck there and and then uh, unintentionally hurt other people with cynicism and just kind of spewing negativity and and or maybe even withdrawing and being defensive and 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 we, instead, God, we want to intentionally choose, and that's what it takes. It's a choice. Intentionally decide that we're going to heal, that we're not going to get stuck, but that that we're going to heal, and we're not going to generalize. We're not going to say, "Well, this person hurt me, therefore all people like that are bad." We're, we resist, you know, fallacious thinking, like like hasty generalization. The truth is some unhealed person hurt us and it's real spiritual trauma is real and for some of us who feel like maybe other people don't believe us maybe we don't talk about it because it's embarrassing as a pastor I can say this morning I believe you And then we know that healing is possible when we open ourselves to something new, to seeing it in a new way. At that point, then Jesus can, can uh, drive away what is tormenting us. And then Jesus comes to the defense of the woman who is being treated like she, she doesn't even matter. That's, that's who we see in Jesus in the Gospels. Help us to see you in a new way. And we thank you for all the future possibilities, even if it's, you know, after today, it's deciding to see a counselor or it's it's deciding to have some conversations or I'm available or so many of us are probably available to talk about difficult experiences and process those and see in new ways. And God, we want to be that as a church. As we go into VIP lunch after this and have a membership class, this is who we want to be. We want to be a church that follows Jesus in being a healer and that offers restoration and defends those who are treated like they're less than for some religious reason. We want to be a kind of church who's there for them. And God, thank you that we have that privilege. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.